I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? You are ignorant of things, and um, but you don't know what you're ignorant of. So you know that uh, with a little more exploration on any sort of topic, and in, in science, you're forced to really look at a topic for a long, long time. You become aware of what you don't know about that topic, but you become aware of the fact that there's always going to be something else beyond that you just around the corner you can't see. So I think the one piece of knowledge that I do know is that there's stuff I don't know, and I, I just I don't know what it is. David Dunning is a social psychologist best known for his study into why people have problems recognizing their own incompetence, which is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. His research focuses on the psychology underlying human misbelief. In his most widely cited work, he showed that people tend to hold flattering opinions of their competence, character, and prospects that cannot be justified from objective evidence. Dunning's other research focuses on decision-making in various settings and how our preferences distort our judgments and conclusions. This fascinating episode explores David's decision-making process, how to protect against psychological biases, and advice on developing your learning abilities. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. David, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? 
Doing well, and yourself? I'm doing really well. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a while, but I'm always intrigued when people have sustained success throughout their career. Is there anything you've done throughout the years, almost every single day, we can think of these as mental calisthenics uh, that you just thought contributed to your success? Uh, well, I, one thing um, that succeeds in work is work. I mean, just uh, working every day. But I think what you want to do is you want to plan. So um, uh, I always have a long-term plan, and I always have a short-term um, plan. And uh, certainly, um, I try to go to bed each night sort of knowing what are the things I have to do tomorrow morning. So I can just knock them off, uh, essentially. So... Um, Thinking about what you're going to do is, I find, uh, the best way to get it done. We've actually had a few recent guests say that. Is that a journaling process, or do you just kind of think about it in your head prior to going to sleep? Uh, I've got a, a notebook where I just keep a running tab of everything. So one page, and it's a sacred page, the page of research ideas I want to get to. And another page is um, tasks that I have to do or things I want to get done for a day. And then there's another page, which is called headaches, uh, which... <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't ignore. So um, so there is a journal, and uh, I try to keep it up to date, and I try to make sure that it's well set. So I don't have to think about, okay, what am I going to do next? That, that's already happened. What about as you're coming across new things within your research? Uh, do you have a process as well for categorizing those and, and being able to circle back to them easily? Uh, not an efficient one, but uh, the, the one thing I do do is I'm sure to make time to find new things to play, um, to wander around the internet, for example, uh, see if there's new material, or if someone sends me something my way, it, taking a look at it. So uh, I find, especially in the type of work that I do, uh, playtime is important uh, in terms of just reaching out and finding out things that would be great to know about, uh, things that are, would be great to think about. How do you actually describe it is what you do? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm an experimental social psychologist, and I guess how I would describe what I do is I tell stories about human nature, but I do so under the discipline or the rigor of science. Mm -hmm. um, that is, it takes me sometimes or often several years to tell a story uh, because I have to develop a, a base of data that are going to uh, compel people to um, believe um, the story that I'm trying to say or this or the observation that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make. And occasionally people will say something like, you know, I didn't believe you, but I was reading the article and at some point I had to cry, uncle, I believe you. That, that, that's what I'm trying to do. So when it works, I'm very happy. What story throughout your career have you just spent the, the longest time going down a rabbit hole on? Uh, the story I keep coming back to is how well do we fulfill the old Delphic Greek uh, uh, exhortation to know thyself. How well do we do that? Do we really know ourselves or are there ways in which uh, we get ourselves wrong uh, that are systematic? Uh, one of my colleagues I thought once had the best tagline is, oh, you're all about fooling yourself and how people manage to do that. And um, I'd accept that. That seems to be the story that, um, in my lab, we keep coming back to, even though there are a lot of other stories we pursue as well. Know thyself. Now you're pretty far along in your career. How well do you know yourself? I'm pretty sure. I hope that I know myself better <laughs> 10 years from now. Uh, it's uh, knowing yourself isn't a destination. It truly is uh, a job or, or a journey. It's something that you have to work on uh, because you do change. Um, the world changes, more importantly. 
And so you can never be settled that you're settled, uh, I guess is the way that I think about it. So um, uh, do I know myself? I hope so in, in important ways, but I, I know from my own research, I can't claim that I do. Yeah, that, that never ending journey. And I'm always fascinated about people's journey. And is it true that you wanted to be a cartoonist? Oh, yes. Way back in the day when I was a kid. Absolutely. Uh, I used to draw. <clears throat> I uh, talked to a few professional cartoonists who, uh, you know, at age 12 or 13 were telling me perhaps I might want to try a different career. Um, but uh, yeah, that was something I definitely did in those days before the Internet. And you had to um, make your own entertainment, so to speak. Yeah, I know it's a little bit different these days. I'm wondering, though, was there almost a crossroads or just even an initial spark uh, that led you down the path you're on today? Uh, I think it was a conjunction of things I've always been interested in, or people told me that I was uh, good at or okay at. Um, namely, uh, I not only wanted to be a cartoonist, I wanted to be a screenwriter. Uh, in fact, when in my early teens, I actually submitted a script to MASH, the TV show, and they rejected it, but they actually read it. Um, and so storytelling is very much a part of what I do in my line of work. Um, but I grew up in a very Sputnik, scientific-oriented community. So the idea that you uh, marshal data, do the math, um, run the statistics is something I can do. And it, it's really the, the, uh, the union of storytelling, uh, but with uh, numbers. So kind of combining multiple skill sets there, it sounds like. That's right. I mean, there was one happy home where you could combine everything. <laughs> and that turned out to be social psychology for me. Yeah. So I'm wondering about that, even that, that early part of the career. We have a lot of young listeners and they're still trying to blend some of their skill sets together. And I'm just thinking about early on, was there anything you did or people you connected with that just helped your trajectory? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think for me, it was a matter of exploration. And exploration did lead me to, uh, to people who uh, told me um, what they felt was was possible or, or were role models. So um, maybe I could have gone down the screenwriting path. There was certainly a lot of me that wanted to become an economist. And uh, then there was psychology and I just explored. Uh, that is, I didn't try to rush into a decision, but just explored and met people along the way, uh, not necessarily in psychology, um, who were very willing to give advice. And uh, uh, those people are precious and should be thought, um, sought out and then listened to. Do you have any specific examples of people throughout your career that played that role model for you? Uh, there were a number of people in the psychology department at Michigan State where I was an undergraduate um, uh, uh, who basically talked about what the life was like to be a professor. That was the, uh, the life I asked uh, about a lot. And coming from a blue collar background, actually, I didn't know much about the professional world. So they were quite good at um, uh, telling me about the life. And there were uh, uh, two graduate students, both named Rob. They were referred to as the Robs, who took me under their wing. So uh, <clears throat> they um, showed me what the life was like as an academic and, and taught me how to party. But, the, um, uh, but I would also say there are other people who sort of reinforce aspects of self. So... Uh, one very important role model was a professor now gone named Arthur Athanason, who taught um, drama in the English department at Michigan State University. And if there is anybody um, out there in your listening uh, audience who encountered him, 
they will remember him. Uh, he developed love-hate relationships, and usually within the same person. And uh, but he reinforced the idea of um, uh, two things: uh, tell a story and never settle. And uh, that's a uh, a lesson I continue on to this day, though my life is very different from what his life was like. Can you even go a little bit deeper on that second lesson, never settle? Uh, I loved how, how you think about that today. Well, uh, uh, as a psychologist and uh, as a storyteller, I'm always trying to dig deeper. That is, I don't assume I have the story. I try to dig, okay, what's really going on? So um, that is, I'm often satisfied with what I found out, but I'm really trying to figure out, okay, what's really going on? So, um, uh, uh, so uh, I question uh, the work that I've done. Uh, I think about connections that my work has to other work. Um, I try to figure out, for example, if there is a way to transform the work into a more basic question. And so uh, it, I'm, I'm always uh, turning things over, rolling things over. I, I don't get obsessive about it. I don't ruminate about it. But I think it's uh, to get to new ideas, uh, I think it's, uh, and the right ideas. Uh, because um, often it's not coming up with the idea, it's recognizing which ideas are important uh, is the real work. And, um, and that involves really pressing to see if you can figure out what, what's really going on. Uh, this might be a difficult one to, to answer. I'm wondering, though, about that transformation process and, and mulling things over. What does that look like? How is that playing out in your head? Uh, it's an interesting question because it's unpredictable. I mean, it's part of play. Um, it, I mean, you can't order it up. Um, sometimes I have graduate students who, um, who come into a meeting and say, okay, I've got 15 minutes, come up with the idea that's going to save my project. <laughs> doesn't happen that way. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, you can't be brilliant or even in, uh, coherent on demand. So, uh, but uh, uh, I think one of the things I've heard, which I, I, I think applies here, is um, it's not so much being able to develop opportunity, but recognizing opportunity or a good idea or a change of thought when it occurs. And so the opportunity itself is luck. What you do with it is all you. And uh, I, this was actually once said, I forget who it was, some famous fashion model who basically said, being discovered is luck. What you do with it afterward is all you. Hmm. And so it's willing to recognize when, either in terms of idea or a career opportunity, um, recognizing that this is something that potentially could be a, a follow-up and that I should work on. You do travel down some cul-de-sacs that way, but uh, I've I found um, latching onto opportunities that present themselves is much more profitable than trying to um, um, create an opportunity. Uh, you wait for it to come to you. Yeah, that's some great advice. I'm wondering, how do you measure skill versus luck in your own life? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I don't know how I measured, and the reason being is I am convinced that luck plays a far bigger role in our lives than we could we could imagine. And uh, as a consequence, but yeah, the luck you may not be able to recognize. Hmm. Uh, it just happens, or you don't know what bad thing could have happened. You only know the good thing that could have happened, or you only know the bad thing that happened. You you don't know how unlucky you are that <clears throat> that's the role uh, that uh, life selected for you. So uh, the answer is, I don't know. I mean, but one thing you can try to do is you can try to 
um, uh, be active and create you know, uh, situations and create opportunities because in the long run, that means there's going to be um, luck will even out and you have more chances to be lucky. And uh, I am a true believer in the idea that luck does favor the prepared person. So how do I measure it? I don't know. Um, uh, what I can control, though, is uh, thinking, trying to think uh, things through, trying to be active, and then um, hopefully luck will come its way. Yeah, I know uh, the Wall Street Journal writer Jason Zweig did a great piece on that, um, on structured serendipity. Uh, he covers a lot on that. That was really interesting. Uh, you seem like you might be someone who's probably above average in terms of just being overall aware of luck that might be coming into their lives. Are, are there things that you've done that you just, your antenna stands up a little bit stronger uh, that you've been able to do throughout your career? Um. Uh, uh, well, uh, I'm not exactly in terms of recognizing luck or creating luck. Correct. Or... Yeah. Just being overall aware when it, when it hits you in the face. Uh, well, there are some things you just can't deny luck. So, um, for example, I've, I've done a lot of things that I think are good, um, and at least as good as anything else. Um, but luck decided to recognize one finding as the thing that would become an internet meme. Uh, uh, that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I construe that as just incredibly lucky that uh, New York Times reporter Erica Good um, saw our title, thought it was intriguing, decided to read the article, um, published the story on it, and then it just sort of snowballed uh, and continues to snowball 20 years later. Uh, there's no way you can call that anything but luck, if you will, uh, because I have lots of other children of papers and research projects that I've done that I think are the equal of the Dunning-Kruger effect, but um, they're unlucky. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's it shown me that you can't predict luck, but also luck can have a, a, a major impact because that, that one paper has had a major impact in opportunities I ha I've had. We wouldn't be talking except for that one paper and the fact that Erica Good liked the title. Interesting. Yeah. No, I'm hoping we can actually bring a little more serendipity to some of your other work because a lot of it I'm really intrigued by. Uh, but yeah, let's hit on the Dunning-Kruger effect here for a second. Can you just describe it? I'd love hearing you articulate it even 20 years later. Sure. I mean, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which by the way, Justin and I, Justin Kruger and I did not name, it was named for us in the internet. And often what I do is I tell graduate students, look, if you don't name your phenomena, they're going to name it after you. <laughs> so, uh, and Justin and I get, um, to have our good family names associated with incompetence, uh, ignorance, <laughs> naivete, gullibility, uh, probably far after we've left this world. So um, talk about luck. Um, but uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect is actually a family of different effects and predictions. But the one that, that people um, focus in on is the idea that incompetent people don't know they're incompetent, uh, unknowledgeable, Inexpert people don't know that they're in inexpert. Actually, we went further than that. We said in many different areas in life, they can't know. They're just not in a position to know. They cannot be expected to know. And that's the real thrust of the Dunning-Kruger effect, essentially because if you are um, inexpert or incompetent or unknowledgeable, uh, you lack the expertise that's needed to recognize your lack of expertise. Um, and everybody does what they think is reasonable. So everybody pretty much thinks they're reasonable uh, in what they're doing. Um, and uh, if it's what they're doing is unreasonable, they're obviously just not in a position to see it because they lack the expertise to steer them in a different direction 
or at least in the direction of asking for advice. Uh, I'm thinking even just like the origin story of that. H- how did you guys come onto that? What, what led to this? Well, um, it was actually a number of experiences that I had, um, which had to do with the fact that as a, a person in academics, you have a lot of people walk into your office and say the most outrageous things. <laughs> Uh, and I don't have to, uh, I don't have to go into it because, uh, some of the stories are funny, but a lot of them are, uh, the telling feels arrogant or cruel, if you will. But, um, uh, I'd be sitting in my chair and thinking, doesn't this person know that what they're saying is ridiculous? Um, how do I break it to them that, no, this isn't, no, you don't want to go down this path. Um, and wondering, do they have any doubt about what they're saying, or do you believe it? And, or, uh, and as a professor, I mean, the, the common experience you have are students who walk into your office uh, having failed or doing very poorly on an exam. And at times they'll sit there um, politely waiting for you as a professor to confess that. Um, you blew the, as a professor, you blew the exam. The, the things you designated were correct answers are clearly wrong. And uh, there was one story I'll tell uh, just briefly. There was one time we actually ran a Dunning-Kruger study in a, an exam setting in one of my classes. And uh, there was one student who did the worst by far than everybody else, but rated uh, his or her performance uh, in the 80th percentile. They beat out 80% of their peers. And I looked, I said, I think I'm going to see this student in my office. And lo and behold, they, they showed up uh, once again to dutifully allow me space to confess that I, I had written the wrong exam. And, and so it, it's experiences like that, that when Justin came in and said they wanted to work um, uh, with me on something, I said, well, there's a question I've always wanted to ask, which is, uh, if a person's a poor performer, if a, a person doesn't know their stuff, do they know? How much do they uh, have some sort of insight that they don't know their stuff. And we were floored when we started getting data back that um, there was some insight, but it was very, very little insight into how badly uh, students or whoever were actually doing. One of my favorite examples uh, is what you wrote about as the, the Pittsburgh bank robber. I would love if you mm. can share that story. This one cracks me up every time. Yeah, I won't, I, I won't name him because I, 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 I feel uh, bad that a quarter century later his story still being told. <laughs> Uh, because uh, we thought, well, we need to we need to exemplify what this this is a brand new thing. We need to give an example, and this is an example I ran into in a World Almanac book of a um, uh, of a robber who was arrested right after um, uh, his bank robbery videotapes, surveillance tapes were shown in local area news. And he, he had attempted no disguise whatsoever. And when they showed him the videotapes, he was astonished because he started muttering, I wore the juice, I wore the juice. Um, that is, he thought that if you rubbed your face with lemon juice, it rendered your face invisible or fuzzy to cameras. And so the, the basic idea there is he, he had a strategy um, that he thought was reasonable, he acted on it. Uh, turned out to be the wrong strategy, um, and uh, he was incredulous <laughs> to find out that it was. Um, I mean, to his credit, I mean, there are details that are left out. Um, he did take a Polaroid of himself after rubbing lemon juice, but he misaimed the camera. So he saw a blank wall. Uh, so, but um, uh, but that that's a story that... Um, 
we started the paper with to try to give an example of what we were talking about. Yeah, a little while ago, you mentioned just being able to look back on five, ten years ago and just laughing at yourself a couple times. Did you have any? This is I wore the juice moments throughout your career. Uh, oh, uh, every time I submit a paper, um, that is what you do is you work very hard on a, um, a set of studies, you write it up, you send it to a journal, and it gets peer reviewed. I mean, uh, peers, uh, other scientists review it. And um, at times, the reviewers are suffering, maybe the Dunning-Kruger effect itself, but uh, there are times when they uh, very neatly and decisively show that you yourself have been suffering the Dunning-Kruger effect. There are things you just overlook. This isn't the complete project that you overconfidently thought it was. And as a scientist, you sort of get used to those moments. And it, it really is the case that um, uh, it's perhaps not surprising that um, a person or people doing science would uh, resonate with this idea that you don't know when you don't know. Uh, you don't know when you're making a mistake or, or lacking something uh, because we live it all the time. Yeah. Our peers make sure that we, we do. I'm just thinking about the the amount of feedback you've probably received throughout your career. How have you gotten better at both interpreting the feedback that comes in, but then being able to, to cut the signal from the noise there? Well, I think uh, as you get older, what you um, uh, get better at, or at least I think I have, uh, which is you've been through the mill a number of times. So uh, as you're developing a project, um, you become better at anticipating what reviewers are going to say. Hmm. You know, what are errors that you've made in the past? Um, what are uh, biases or prejudices you, you can presume that reviewers have, that odd takes that they always seem to have? Uh, so I think I've become better at having a Greek chorus in my head from the get-go and starting a project about, okay, this is how things are going to go wrong. And uh, that does match up with uh, what's taught in uh, some management classes I know, for example, which is uh, think of the project you're working on, project yourself into the future, and finding out is, is a disaster. Okay, what happened to make it a disaster? And uh, all I've added through the years is well, there's that technique. But over the years, I've found out, at least for me or for other people whose papers I review, um, what tends to be the disaster they they walk themselves into. So um, that's the one thing um, I think I'm better at now than um, uh, I have been before, but I'm always learning. It's never over. Yeah, never-ending process. I'm wondering about some of those disasters and the misinterpretations of the Dunning-Kruger effect that, that seem to be readily out there. Uh, what, what are some of the big misconceptions that, that you've come across? Oh, it is sort of interesting because it is the case that there are a lot of people suffer Dunning-Kruger in their understanding of Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> um, uh, there are two major ones. Uh, the first one is the idea that it's the incompetent who are the most confident. Uh, we never said that. Our original graph never uh, displayed that. It's not that incompetent people are the most confident among everybody. Um, they're the most overconfident. That is, they just don't, they anticipate a wee bit, but they don't anticipate just how much um, their performances are poor. Uh, so the idea that the uh, incompetent or most confident is one misunderstanding. And we do see that. There are some examples that are flamboyant. Uh, but uh, the key thing about the Dunning-Kruger effect is we all suffer it sooner or later. And... Um, uh, it's just, we, we don't know. We can't recognize it. That's, that's the nature of the effect. The other thing is that, um, well, in, 
at the very beginning, a lot of people misunderstood the work and thought it was specifically about bosses. Why is my boss so stupid? And it wasn't, but that has morphed through the 20 years to be not so much about um, expertise and ability level, but to be about beginners uh, and the overconfidence that they experience when they're introducing themselves to a new field. So if you, I uh, guarantee you, if you Google images of the Dunning-Kruger effect on the internet, at least 17 of the first 20 images you'll see will be of a graph that has nothing to do with what Justin and I did in 1999 or talked about uh, for several years. And, and the basic idea is that you may start out appropriately cautious, but then you become extremely overconfident as you're a newbie, as you're a new person. And then uh, life takes care to um, uh, teach you the lesson and <laughs> you become more cautious. Uh, and now the, the good news is that um, we've actually tested that idea and it, 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 uh, in our data, it does work. That is to give people a completely novel task like diagnose who's at risk for becoming a zombie in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, on average, people will be appropriately caught. Oh, and you have to do the diagnosis, but your supervisor is away at the CDC. So it's all you. You've got 60 patients to see. You'll get feedback, but good luck. Um, you have to learn, you know, what diagnosis, uh, uh, you know, what, what to diagnose on. Uh, people start off appropriately confident, but after 10, 15 patients, they're wildly overconfident hmm. in their ability to do this task. That is, they're improving but their confidence far outstrips their um, uh, actual performance. And then it begins to level off or decline a little bit uh, before it starts going up later on. Performance continues to go up. Um, it never catches up with confidence. People are overconfident. Um, but there is this critical pe uh, period very early on where people are decidedly overconfident. So the internet gets it wrong um, in terms of what the Dunning-Kruger effect is. I've seen people give talks. <laughs> Uh, on the Dunning-Kruger effect and show the wrong graph. Uh, and it was a situation where we're trying to figure out how do we correct this? How do we tell people this is not the Dunning-Kruger effect? The only thing we could think of doing is, well, let's see if, if this faux Dunning-Kruger effect uh, works out in data. The answer is it does. So um, people are getting it wrong, but I'm happy to report that whatever they think the Dunning-Kruger effect is, scientific evidence supports yeah. it. <laughs> there, there we go. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering though, why most of us just think we're special, even if we're not? Uh, it's um, a very uh, interesting question. Well, one thing to remember is that in some sense, uh, each one of us is special in terms of the concatenation of every facet of who we are. I mean, no one is like you, no one ex is exactly like me. But when it comes to a single skill, uh, I, like, I should have phrased uh, the question a little better. So, so thank you for yeah, cleaning well, up. Well, well, no, but when it comes to a, a single uh, skill, um, it turns out we're more, more like most people. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just in the putting everything together, taking all the jigsaw puzzles. Uh, um, each one of us, are, each, each individual piece of who we are looks a lot like other people. Uh, we're not all that special. Um, uh, but if you put everything together, the picture that gets created is a special one. But um, part of the issue that we have is there are uh, jigsaw puzzle pieces that are invisible to us. Hmm. And one way to think about it is that we know what we know, but what we don't know um, is, has to be larger. Yeah. 
uh, period, but it's also invisible. Uh, that is, uh, and this becomes the territory of unknown unknowns. Uh, things are so unknown to us, we don't even know, we don't know it. Um, uh, there are so many uh, concepts in, in languages other than English that you and I just simply don't know. And they're really legitimate, wonderful concepts. We just don't know them. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that sits outside our little, our little um, encapsulation of knowledge. Um, but everything, but a lot of things that lie outside of it, uh, it's just beyond the event horizon of our ability to see it. Have you discovered as you go deeper on a topic or a certain skill that you uncover more unknown unknowns, or just become aware that there's so much more out there? Well, uh, I, I think that it happens at two levels. Uh, often what I become aware of is um, what I don't know or what are circumstances where it's complicated and uh, um, really requires more thought and attention. And then there's this other level where after a while, if you're thinking about ignorance, you begin to realize that, uh, that yeah, you are ignorant of things, and uh, but you don't know what you're ignorant of. So you know that uh, with a little more exploration on any sort of topic, and in, in science, you're forced to really look at a topic for a long, long time. Uh, you become aware of what you don't know about that topic, but you become aware of the fact that there's always going to be something else beyond, that you, just around the corner you can't see. Uh, so, um, so I think the one piece of knowledge that I do know is that there's stuff I don't know, and I, I just... I don't know what it is. Yeah. I'm wondering, I asked the question a minute ago about those people. We, we all think we're special in, in certain domains. What about those people who feel that way from the start, but actually end up being truly special in that? And we're, we're talking about like the elite few, uh, an Edison, mm. a Jobs, things like that. Are they doing something? Are they thinking differently than the rest of us? I, I'd love to just hear you riff on this. Um, that's an interesting question because I think it does depend on the tasks that you uh, uh, put above yourself. Uh, put uh, in front of yourself. But um, uh, I think uh, what you don't see among these people is complacency. Hmm. Uh, they're always uh, working on it, uh, if you will. They're always pressing things uh, uh, somewhat more. So uh, um, a lot of what I've seen is it's really a, a work rate. Um, that is, what you want to be is that you want to have special talents, sure, uh, but then you want to be an overachiever, even with special uh, talent. So I think if you maybe think of Steve Jobs, but I think if you take a look at um, LeBron James, if you look at Michael Jordan, if you look at Lionel Messi, uh, they are supremely talented, but they're also obsessed. They also work on it. Hmm. Uh, they work on it hard. Um, uh, they probably have notebooks, maybe with goals that I need to achieve or um uh, issues that I have to address in their own uh, professional life. Uh, so, if there's anything special, that's the uh, uh, that's that's the thing that impresses me. You can be supremely talented and also be an overachiever because you just work hard at it. Does the influence of that naive optimism does that have to be part of the component to to reach that successful level of, the, of one of the truly greats, or does that not matter? Uh, it depends on what the naive optimism makes you do. So uh, if the naive optimism uh, leads you to work harder, uh, if it allows you to work, um, you think this is something that you can do, 
Um, and it, you work through uh, fatigue, you work through pain. Uh, let's say if you're trying to get to the Olympics, for example, uh, then that naive optimism is important. If that naive optimism, uh, however, leads to complacency, nah, of course, anybody can be, uh, you know, an, uh, uh, an expert in rowing in the Olympics. All you have to do is this, right? <laughs> uh, I'll start tomorrow, maybe next week. Um, so if the optimism leads you to complacency, um, it can lead to the exact reverse. Now, what the world shows us are the successes. Uh, what the world, what tends to be invisible are the people who are overconfident and as a consequence, they're complacent. So I don't think it's necessarily the confidence that matters, the optimism that matters. It's what you do with it. No, no, that makes perfect sense. So yeah, I mean, that, that's what I always do. If I'm optimistic about something, I always ask myself, okay, now what is this optimism leading you to do? Yeah, no, that's uh, a great way to phrase it. I'm always yeah. thinking about one of those, those overly optimistic. And of course, there's going to be all the people who start a business and then uh, one of the, the diet routines or things like that. So many people seem to, to fall off on. What do you attribute this to? Uh, I think it uh, has to do with... Um, uh, it has to do with the unknown unknowns, the things that you don't know, you don't know. Uh, so if you're dieting, for example, um, you don't realize how much there might be hunger, uh, for example, or that you um, really do have to uh, plan for, okay, well, how do you react to a, a failure? That is, there are going to be things that you run into mm -hmm. uh, that you didn't anticipate. And so it would be wise to talk to a person who's been down that road before or some sort of mentor, some sort of expert who knows how people tend to uh, fall off because they're just things you don't know. Um, and that's also true for business. I, that is um, a, a lot of businesses plan for um, what they can anticipate in terms of difficulties or challenges, but they don't plan for the fact they're gonna be challenges that they don't know about. I mean, uh, that just come out of the blue. Mm -hmm. I mean, unfortunately, we're in the middle of one rather big one right now, uh, which is the the COVID situation. What that's what's that's doing, and how devastating it is to a lot of small businesses. Well, uh, there are smaller challenges like COVID happening all the time. You just can't anticipate them. Life happens, and so that you do have to be uh, not so much cautious in what you do, but cautious in how you prepare for it. Mm -hmm. That is, if you take a, a look at the economic literature on starting new businesses and entrepreneurship, um, a lot of those businesses fail, and what causes them to fail is they just didn't capitalize enough. They would have made it, except they didn't capitalize or they didn't have enough money to tie them over until they could actually turn a profit. They underestimated how long it was going to take to turn a profit, or they didn't anticipate the fact there could be out of the blue challenges that, that occurred to them. And that's really what does them in. So um, one of the ways to think about overconfidence is it does cause a lot of people to start a lot of really terrific small businesses and some of them succeed and society profits. But I often think about how many more <laughs> would have succeeded, profited and society would be better off if people had been cautious, not in what they choose to do, but cautious in the execution and the preparation for challenges that, they may be, um, that may be coming up. Does that come down to it's almost errors of omission as opposed to commission? I think it, it's exactly errors of omission hmm. uh, because often these are things that you just can't anticipate. Interesting. Um, 
And uh, so, and we've actually done work directly on errors of omission. And um, uh, what we found in this is not a surprise is that people don't have any magical insight into their errors of omission. That is things you don't, uh, you don't recognize. So um, one of the um, studies we did is we had uh, college students play Boggle. It's a word game. Uh, where you have like a four by four array of letters and you have to figure out what English words snake through the specific letters you've got in that four by four array. And we'd have students play Boggle and ask them how well they did and uh, ask them how many uh, words they had missed um, that were actually, when the time was up, were actually there, but you know, they didn't get to or they couldn't see. And um, in the series of uh, puzzles, uh, people may have, uh, may say, well, I think I missed about 18 words. They got about 24, they missed about 18. But in reality, they had missed about 240 words. <laughs> uh, because there are words that they knew, but they didn't see, but there are also words they missed because they had no idea that was a word. And uh, what this suggests is that there's a whole range of errors of omission that we can do, but they remain uh, invisible to us, and it stands to logic. If we could um, see the error that we're going to make, we wouldn't make that error. Yeah. It, uh, go ahead. No, it's just an incredibly helpful mental model for me. Knowing I'm not missing 18 words most of the time, I'm missing over 200 plus words, and, and just thinking about the amount of things that uh, we just we just don't take notice to. Oh, I think that's right. That's why it's important to have mentors or experts because they have a better shot at knowing how things should happen and they have a better shot at knowing what didn't happen yeah. if you will i mean if you're brand new to something <clears throat> you don't know what's supposed to happen or how things typically go wrong or how things could be different uh experts though, will have will have seen the range of everything so they can spot omission omissions uh much better than a beginner can and uh so i think that that speaks to the reason why you um, want an expert uh, maybe the best example i can think of is anybody who's ever tried to draw up a contract? We'll start with whoever they're drawing up a contract with. You'll come up with a four-page document that you think is pretty good about uh, what are contingencies, what are issues that you two should settle before you sign on the dotted line. Then you take it to a lawyer. <laughs> and it comes back with 40 pages of things you never would have thought of. Um, <clears throat> and uh, But that speaks to the errors of uh, omission and the importance of expertise. That's really... One of the things that expertise really gives you, it gives, it gives you not only a sense of what could happen, but also what didn't happen. So, yeah, I've had that experience a few times in my life, and it's always eye opening when you take that, that contract to the lawyers. You've brought up mentors and then experts many times throughout this. And one of the big problems I, I, I see a lot of times with, with young people is they might get access to that mentor, that expert, and they don't even know what to do. What are the next steps? Is there anything you've mm -hmm. uncovered throughout your career uh, when you are in the same room as that person to, to help you advance your career and learn a little bit more? Uh, one of the things I do is not talk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that they'll talk. Um, uh, but I'll also, uh, try to make sure to ask the expert what I should be asking. So, uh, what haven't I covered? Uh, what am I missing here? Um, it, it, often I find experts or mentors are very eager, uh, to let you know, but they won't unless you, uh, ask the question, uh, sometimes because there's just so much you're missing, but, um, uh, but uh, I think um, listening, but maybe not stopping at just one. 
uh, listening to uh, a cabinet of mentors or experts, if you will, for example, I find is is very, very key. And listen to how they disagree as well as how much of uh, what they agree on. That's, that's, I think, one of the best points there, um, that cabinet of mentors, but then also how they disagree. Uh, that's just tremendously helpful when you can triangulate the views like that. Uh, I'm thinking about just like skills that, that you've self-articulated and, and you've uncovered throughout your career. What do you think for you is just one of the, the skills or mindsets that's just hardest to pass on to a mentee? Oh, that's an interesting. I've never thought of that. So I have to uh, <laughs> uh, think about that. Um, uh, I, uh, I think the pressure point that I often find is sometimes... Uh, I'll give a piece of advice to a, a student or a young person, and they look quizzical, and they just drop it. Um, and um, and I'll have the same experience. I'm talking to someone in, a, in an area that's new to me. I'll kind of go, that doesn't, I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. And I drop it. Yeah. And uh, I think it's those moments where uh, it's really important to say time out. I, I, why is that important? I don't get what you're saying. But um, uh, so there's that. But I think the other thing is um, just having some sort of uh, awareness in ways that you uh, don't know that uh, the world that the mentor or the older person or the learned person might be living in might be very different from the world that you're in. That is that there's a way to think about these issues that's different from the way that you're thinking. That is... Um, uh being young is being wrecked around so many unknown unknowns you don't and what people do is you just assume what they know is all there is i think denny kahneman had the phrase uh what you see is all there is uh, that's a bias people have we call it the totality illusion um in my lab is you think what you know is everything and um so you don't think through okay how might the world be different from the way that i construe it uh, and there are a lot of different examples of that, but uh, maybe the the easiest way uh, to describe this is uh, I've had very good undergraduates uh, through the years who might have my phone number and they're doing their senior thesis, let's say. And so they're looking through it and they'll call me up at three o'clock in the morning, uh, simply because it, it never occurs to them that an older person might be sleeping <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I generally have to break it to them. If I get a call at three o'clock in the morning, my parents are elderly. And my first thought is not, you have a problem in your statistical package. Um, uh, but we just have to be aware that that's true, that uh, uh, when we enter into a new domain um, or a new area of life, um, uh, it might just be different for the other person much more uh, in, in ways we just don't know. It, what we know is not all there is. There's something else that person knows or there's something else that person's living in. This has me just wanting to explore metacognition and thinking about mm. thinking a little bit more. How do you view that and then how do you use that in your own life? Well, I think the way to think about it is that I've come to recognize that every judgment or decision we make is really two uh, decisions. There's the decision we come to, uh, but then there's the second decision of how sure we are, um, how... Uh, uh, assured we are that we've uh, found the correct way to um, to move, to go. And uh, so I think that metacognition, and that second judgment is metacognition, it's thinking about thinking, it's 
uh, a lot of it is evaluating uh, your decisions. There's more that goes into metacognition, but that's a major component to it. And so I think it's, um, uh, uh, it's just a judgment that people give short shrift to, or they really don't explore that second judgment as much as they could. That is the key for that second judgment is, should I be sure of this decision or should I um, have some doubt? And uh, people don't necessarily go all the steps that they could do to um, really come to the best second judgment, if you will. Mm -hmm. So um, you don't want to do this all the time or then you're just wrapped up in thinking. But if a decision is important, you do want to think about, okay, uh, how I, I think X, but uh, how could the world be different that that's the wrong way to go? Or how could I be wrong here? Uh, that is go through some explicit steps. Uh, to try to figure out whether I should be sure of something or not. Um, the key aspect of metacognition or, or confidence is um, I think overconfidence is inevitable because we tend to choose uh, actions that we're confident in. So I don't, uh, I, it's very rare that a person says, well, I could do this, I could do that. Um, I think this is the right decision, but I'm going to do the opposite thing. We don't do that. <laughs> we choose the thing we're confident in. Um, and so the bottom of our confidence, the actions we choose, has a, has a positive floor. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, um, faith doesn't have a positive floor. <laughs> it can go to zero or it can go below zero. So um, we have to be on guard that uh, there may be times when fate has a different idea for us. It's not going to be so pleasant. Um, but whatever decision we make, if we're going to tempt fate, is, uh, it's, we're always going to have positive confidence about it. We might want to think through that positive confidence a little bit more. Yeah. I always love hearing about the, the different frameworks people are using and had a recent conversation with Annie Duke, the former poker player. She's had mm. a book, How to Decide, and she goes through a lot of the, the tools and frameworks she uses. Any tools, checklists, things like that that you incorporate that you think are actually really beneficial? Well, uh, one thing on the checklist, and I think Andy Duke actually is a terrific person to um, uh, chat with because poker, I think, is a tremendous, you know, that's her background, a tremendous metaphor for life, which is you can make a great decision and have it turn out badly, but it's the right decision. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I, I do think it's important to uh, come in with the idea that you don't have conclusions, you have ideas, you have hypotheses. You're going to act on them, but you're going to entertain the idea that you, you could, be, could be wrong. And I think that's a way, for example, to approach um, thinking about COVID uh, because uh, through the months we've heard a lot about COVID. Uh, COVID's an interesting um, situation for me as a theorist because it's congratulations, you have a new circumstance where everybody is ignorant. Uh, everybody is inexpert. You know things, but a lot of things you know are going to turn out to be wrong. Like it's going to go away in the summer. Yeah. No, that's the flu. That's not this thing. But you don't know that till you live it. So, but you have to do something. You you have to figure out how do I live life uh, with this pandemic uh, out there. So you have ideas, but you're you're open to the idea of mid course corrections, if you will. Um, uh, you know that what you believe now you might have to tweak and you might have to completely reverse on. I think that, 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 that's one thing to do. Um, but I also uh, think that the other checklist uh, that you want to keep in mind, and I've, I've already alluded to it, is that often uh, the way we think about things is we 
do confirmatory thinking. We think about why is this the right decision? Um, we all take a confirmatory stance. Um, uh, I think the argument within psychology is conf confirmation bias. That is only seeking evidence in favor of the conclusion that you're considering. Is, is that um, bias number one or bias number two uh, in terms of people's thinking? Um, I think it would be terrific if people had in their checklist um, adopting a dis disconfirmatory stance as well. Could I be wrong? Could it be, could it be different? Consider the opposite. Uh, I think it's is something that, that can be done. Um, that, for me, that's an easy way to think because um, uh, the way I'm a scientist, I do science stuff. Um, the, the, what scientists are really doing is we have an idea and we put that idea into test in, in the laboratory or in some sort of data. And the exercise actually isn't so much trying to confirm the idea we have, but taking an idea and see if it survives an ordeal, hmm. where the scientific method has set up uh, a chance for the idea really to fail. And I've had lots of ideas fail. They're just wrong. And uh, so I think adopt having a checklist where you say, okay, can I be wrong? What's a real test here for the idea that I have? How might things turn out differently from the way I think um, is a, um, is a checklist to have, not for every decision, like, um, okay, is it fish or chicken tonight for dinner? Not for every decision, but when it counts, uh, for example. Yeah, having, having the mental energy even for, for those big decisions. It's funny, the scientific method, something we learn in first, second grade, so few of us actually implement and could save us so much time, effort, and energy and money uh, throughout our lives. You, you clearly are, are very skilled in a lot of different domains. Um, so I'm hoping you, you won't be too humble here. What do you think has <laughs> been your comparative advantage throughout your career? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, if there's anything I will assign to myself in my biology, I just, I just have a, a, a wicked memory. <laughs> so the, the, the amount of useless stuff I can remember is, is legion. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so the weirdest stuff comes up in discussions with, uh, with people. Um, but I, uh, but I do think that at least for the work that I do, having this orientation toward telling a story, trying to come up with a point, um, is uh, uh, is an advantage or a stance that I think really helps um, because it's not so much um, uh, any sort of idea or any sort of thought or any sort of hypothesis I come up with, but being able to communicate uh, it to other people, but also to be able to communicate it to myself. Um, because uh, in the work that I do, the issue is um, not so much coming up with an idea, but uh, an idea that somebody should care about. And uh, so uh, coming up with some sort of a writer's sense of, okay, this is an idea that, that people care about, uh, uh, that, that turns out to be important. I'm just wondering, you said being even able to communicate it to yourself. And I feel like it's, it's really helped me to still my own ideas down when I try to explain it to myself. What's that process like for you? Uh, uh, I think well, what I try to do is I try to relate it to what are real world circumstances uh, out there. Um, uh, where might this um, uh, observation I have or insight, potential insight that I have, where does it apply? Um, uh, how does it connect with uh, basic issues that have long um, 
uh, concerned or obsessed uh, writers or philosophers or psychologists, for example. Uh, one of the things I like doing, by the way, is uh, talking to reporters uh, because good reporters are very good at coming up with, okay, what your idea is really about. <laughs> uh, they're very good at the communication thing. And so I've learned um, in uh, talking to the press, a lot of what my ideas are really about. Hmm. Uh, uh, that is, you, if you get another person's uh, thoughts, uh, thinking about it, who isn't a scientist, uh, who isn't stuck in the laboratory the way that I am, uh, who can relate it to real world things, whose training is in telling the story. Um, uh, I often end an interview kind of going, oh, okay, now I know what I'm studying. Okay, now I get it. I didn't get it before, but now I get it. Um, so, uh, uh, so I, I, but I, so I think that's an important aspect or an important orientation, uh, that helps me train this memory for useless facts I seem to have. With, uh, 215 plus episodes, no one's ever said that before. Um, so that's a really, oh, really? interesting angle. Yeah. I haven't heard that and it, it makes perfect sense. And, and one now I want to explore, uh, from, for my own self-interest here, you, you were mentioned just being able to, to remember a great deal, but even being able to remember that you have to explore a great deal. I'm wondering what your overall information diet consumption is like. Are, are you reading a lot of different books, articles, a, any things that you're consuming daily? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, as I've gotten older, my attention span has gotten smaller. <laughs> And I have to admit, I'm the type of person now who, when watching a movie, will just basically see the first half hour to sort of get, okay, I see the style and the mood and the beats and everything. And then I fast forward to the ending because, okay, I got, you know, the movie. Now I just see, need to see how it resolves. Uh, so, uh, um, so I uh, uh, do sort of consume a lot of the different things, but the shorter they are, the better. So... Uh, there are some blogs I follow. Uh, there's a lot of long form stuff on the internet that I will, um, uh, that I will read because, um, writing long form on the internet is just a great way to communicate, uh, ideas or arguments and all their implications. Um, when it's a book, I'll read the first two chapters and then go to the end. It's a little bit like a movie for me. Okay. I get the basic idea. <laughs> Uh, got it. I got the beats. Okay, let's see where you're. Okay, where you're headed with this. Um, and um, so uh, there are books I want to read. Uh, there are a ton of books I have on my Kindle that I've never gotten to. Uh, but I've decided it's okay. I'll never get to them all, but I should get to a few more than I'm doing currently. But um, but uh, but I'll read in economics. I'll read in politics. Uh, th those are my natural interests. Um, uh, uh, I obviously have to read a lot of psych. I don't have to worry about reading psychology. Psychology just presents a lot of yeah. itself for, uh, for me to read, but I find more valuable the stuff that lies outside my area of expertise, uh, that allows me to find out what people find important out there. Um, that's outside my little circle of uh, professionalism. I find that often is very important. Are there any books that have just had tremendous impact for you that are outside your expertise? Uh, I have to go back to the ones of my youth. I mean, um, the book that I find uh, has been very useful, it's, I think it's 40 years old, um, is Gertel Escher Bach, The Internal Golden Braid, uh, which was a very popular book. I lost my book because all my friends kept borrowing it. And it's a book about recursion of all things um, in computer science. But what the book um, introduced me to is this idea of play. Let's take this idea of recursion where something goes back and refers to itself or repeats itself or refers to itself, or refers to itself again. 
Um, and maybe the movie Inception sort of is the movie that encapsulated that as you go from different levels and so forth of, of the reality that they were in. Um, but the book was incredibly playful. Uh, it just took an idea and went with whatever um, was joyful. And I, I found that lesson to be uh, incredibly important. Yeah, nothing like uncovering some of those strange loops in life. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm also wondering, uh, we've talked a lot about just different things people can do early in their career. I, I'm just wondering if there was three things starting off, you were going to say, hey, if you want to end up here at the end of all this, these three things I'd put a considerable amount of time into. Um, uh, uh, I would say uh, definitely um, the, the term is network, but I really mean just uh, establish communications with a lot of different types of people in a lot of different um, areas of, of expertise that you can draw upon or enter into conversation with. Uh, make yourself known, essentially. Now in psychology, what that means is going and giving talks or uh, getting down to social media or writing a blog or doing a podcast. Um, getting yourself known gets yourself known. Mm -hmm. um, and people begin to um, associate a voice or a face with a, a person. Uh, but it also forces you into some sort of discipline of thought because you're once again trying to communicate a story. So I find uh, that to be very, uh, very important. So um, I guess if you had a, um, a general theme, it's make yourself visible uh, to other people. Yeah, that's uh, so some tremendous advice there early on. Um, I'm wondering, though, you, you brought up a lot of interesting people throughout this talk. Who, and it could be within work or, or just people you've been around, have you been in most all of throughout your life? Mm. That's interesting. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, well, uh, one has to start with Amos Tversky because the usual thing with Amos Tversky is people say he's the smartest person I ever met. And the answer is yes. <laughs> and um, uh, the, uh, the work that he and Danny Kahneman uh, did was just absolutely brilliant. And he was taken to us far too, uh, far too soon. So, um, uh, his work, I find um, uh, just an incredible role model of uh, how to think about things within my field. Um, sort of, I have a, a very odd uh, uh, way of thinking about that because I'm entering into my older years uh, as we speak. And so I'm now looking at role models who um, uh, are good role models about how to be an older person, if you will. So I'll just rifle some, I'll rifle three names really quickly. Uh, if I can remember them, remember I am in my older years. Uh, Uri Bronfenbrenner was a professor of psychology at, um, uh, who's since passed, uh, I think all these people have passed, unfortunately, uh, who basically um, exemplified grace and generosity in his older years. He was always interested in what you had to say. Um, that uh, he respected what you had to say. He was interested in what you had to say. He wanted to support what you had to say. And I found um, that just to be a tremendous role model, really how to interact with other people as, as you get older, probably younger too, but certainly older. Uh, I had a chance to meet Janet Reno uh, when I was at Cornell and interact with her for a few days. And uh, I was very impressed uh, by her because she had a message she wanted to send about what universities should be doing. And, um, and her message was that universities should be adopting cities nearby as laboratories and figuring out what could work for those cities. Mm -hmm. Why didn't Cornell adopt Syracuse? 
and just improve the life of people living in Syracuse. And she worked me, and I'm sure she worked everybody. But And I was so very impressed with the clarity, but really uh, impressed with the passion that she had. And finally, just to be really out of left field, I would mention um, uh, uh, Garrett Fitzgerald. Now, probably very few people know who that is. He twice was the prime minister, the Tessuk of Ireland in the 1980s. And just by chance, luck, um, uh, I spent an evening with him at dinner. And uh, here was a person who just um, was a politician. He was charming, he was gracious, but he was the most joyful nerd I have ever experienced in my life. This is the kind of guy who, when he was laid up in the hospital once, decided to ask for his staff to bring in telephone books uh, through the years in Ireland so he could try to trace the migration of clans in Ireland during the, the 20th century. And um, I was just in, uh, impressed with the person who was willing to uh, have an interesting idea and just follow it um, well into his uh, uh, later. I, these are just great role models in terms of uh, generosity, in terms of passion, in terms of just being the person that you want to be. Um, and uh, so what I'm, the puzzle I'm trying to solve now is how to be me in my older years. I think these are three really good role models for me to uh, latch on to. Yeah, well, I think something that you just did in, in terms of being a role model for all of us listeners is how you just wove the story into each one of those people. Uh, it's, it's much mm-hmm. more vivid now and really connected. Uh, final one here. I would love to know if you could sit down, do this with someone, interview for an entire evening, dead or alive, not a family member or friend. Is there mm-hmm. anyone that you'd love to do that with? Oh, there are too many people. I, mean, uh, uh, I would love to do that with. Um, and some of them are obscure. Um, uh, only social psychologists and very few of them would uh, recognize the name Gustav Eichheiser. So we'll, we'll pass that one. He's the great, the terrific work that no one ever noticed. Um, but uh, he anticipated a lot of what was going to happen. Uh, so... Um, uh, I would like to spend time with him because he, for a lot of the themes that in my field um, are very central today, he had them decades before anybody else had. And what was his name again? Gustav Eichheiser. Bless you. Um, oh, uh, yeah, I have not come across him. But any, any exactly, key- very few, very few people have. But um, he was talking about uh, situationism. The uh, I'll just give you one example: yeah, the right. idea that. Um, we're much more, as a species, we're much more flexible, we're much more responsive to the situation we're in as opposed to our actions really coming out of our character. This goes back to the idea I mentioned before. <clears throat> Individually, we're all unique and we're all characters, but when you get to a specific situation or circumstances, uh, we're all more like one another than, than not. I mean, uh, the situation drives our behavior. That's what situationism is. Uh, that is, um, you really, in the old days, couldn't predict who was going to go all the way in the shocking experiment that was done, literally shocking, well, not, it was fake shocking, electric shocking, uh, done by um, Stanley Milgram, but um, a lot, many more people than you would think went all the way. So, um, uh, uh, so that's the idea of situationism. He was, uh, he was uh, talking about that well before anybody else was. Uh, that becomes a, a dominant theme because of Milgram, because of other experiments in in the 60s and the 70s. But um, let me try to think if there's anybody um, 
I, I have a quick one on, on situation okay. with ism while I, while I have you here. Sure. Because uh, I recently just came ac across a quote and it was talking about Napoleon Bonaparte and essentially Napoleon Bonaparte became Napoleon Bonaparte because he was a part of the great wars and that led him to becoming that great leader. I would love to just hear your, your take on this, almost thinking of someone like today, like a, a Jeff Bezos, he, he ridiculously talented, but because of the system he was in, it led him to become that. What, what's your take on that? Well, I think that that's part of it. That is that, uh, and it goes back to luck, is that uh, often it's not um, the person, it's just the, the match of the person and the timing of the person to a situation or an opportunity that arises. So, um, but who the person is going to be is determined by circumstance as opposed to anything else. So uh, an uh, analysis I'd like to see happen, this is the way that I think about it, Please, is, just, you, get, you got me nerding out now. I can hear you think this through. <laughs> okay, well, no. Is, is the type of person who becomes an elite tennis player the same as they would have been in 1980? Hmm. Because the rackets are different. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have elite tennis players. But is the, the real skill you need now different uh, because of all the super rackets uh, we have and the conditioning methods we have relative to 1980, where if you play... Ten, if anybody who never played with the tennis racket circuit 1980, you begin to realize this is a very different sport. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because now the rackets can, you know, just shoot the ball at speeds that were, you just couldn't see. So if you take a look at an old macro at Borg match, you, I think the thing that you'd be impressed by is just how slow the ball is moving. Uh, so there's an artistry involved as opposed to boom, 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 uh, that you see now. So you're going to have elite players. Uh, but who gets chosen to be elite changes because of the, the underlying circumstances of what's going on. I, I, I've been waiting to come across an article that it really explores that. Uh, is there a different selection criteria in terms of elite tennis players? Because, uh, well, the game is, uh, because of equipment, is fundamentally different. Yeah. Uh, I love that thought experiment. If you, if you come across the, any research into that, uh, please share that out. That would be really interesting to dive into. Uh, uh, it would be. I've been waiting for someone to yeah. do it. Maybe they have. I don't know about it. Um, but uh, but I've been wondering about that. Okay, who gets selected for sports? Has it changed? Um, because of differences in equipment, differences because of rules. Uh, certainly different types of people are being chosen uh, in the NBA and the NFL because rules are different. Um, and play strategy is different uh, relative to... Um, uh, previous eras <clears throat> when it would have been a different type of person with a different skill set um, that uh, would have been the one that rises. I know you were trying to wrap your brain around an another person you might want to sit down with. Um, if you don't have anyone, that's fine. Uh, I just didn't want to. Uh, well, I, I, well uh, uh, I've, I've narrowed it down to movie directors in my head. <laughs> but uh, there are a uh, number of um, uh, there are a number of movie directors I would just love to sit down and, and chat with. Um, let me really randomly uh, select one would be a Chinese film director uh, by the name of Zhang Yimou, uh, who has done a lo lot of different movies, um, all in all Chinese. Um, uh, but he, he's done everything but little domestic comedies and dramas all the way up to epic um, uh, uh, epic types of movies, uh, but his movies are, the stories are so tight and uh, the movies are so uh, lyrical. Um, 
and beautiful, visually beautiful. I'd love to um, be able to sit down with him. If I can't sit down with him, it'd be Alfonso Caron, mm -hmm. another film director who, um, uh, uh, earlier I mentioned uh, someone who could figure out what's really going on and find the, the deepest or the broadest stories. His movies feel like they're about that. He'll take something and then dive deep into what it's really about. And uh, I find his movies to be just awe-inspiring. That's, that's where I would go. No, I, I love how your mind works. I, I love hearing these thoughts. This is fantastic. Uh, I know something you brought up earlier. Uh, people don't ask enough. What, what should I have asked? Um, was, was there something mm. I didn't cover there? Oh, shoot. I should have anticipated that question. <laughs> uh, 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 well, uh, I think the one thing thing that um, maybe I'd like to leave people with is that um, if you're uh, not in science, uh, do try to become familiar with what is the scientific method. And the reason for that is going forward, uh, we're only going to recognize the importance of the scientific method for informing us. And I th the COVID situation is certainly that. And so you have to learn some so, uh, things that are obvious to if you're in the, if you do the business, it's obvious to you. It's not obvious to people out there. The idea that scientists will change the story. Okay, it's going to, uh, uh, the virus is going to go away in the summer. Oh, it's not going to go away in the summer. Um, watch out for touching surfaces. Well, really it's air molecules and, and water droplets that people breathe out that you have to be concerned about. The story develops that's um, the way it happens in science, but it can be very disconcerting. Uh, if you're on the outside, you can go, do these people really know what they're talking about? And the answer is no, they're on their way to figuring out what they're gonna be talking about. But they're ahead of us and they're using the method that'll get us to what we're supposed to be talking about. And the reason I bring it up is that um, uh, we're, we are doing some work on how much people know about the scientific method and what sort of consequences um, happen because people don't know the scientific method. Um, uh, there are some people or a lot of people who don't even, it never enters their mind that what scientists do is they collect data and to inform them about uh, what to conclude. Uh, if they see data, they assume that we just conclude what we want to conclude and then bring in data as window dressing. And uh, that's, that's not the way it works. Um, and, but we've done work showing that people who um, uh, don't really know the rules of the game, don't really know the restrictions are that are on scientists, um, think that scientists basically can say whatever they, they just want to say. And that's, that's, no, there are lots of constraints on what, what we can say. And they also distrust scientific conclusions. And I think in part because they don't realize your deals to go into creating those scientific illusions. And so this um, uh, finding has made me want to spread the word a little bit that it, it's good to know the basics about um, uh, the rules of the game, the constraints that science places on what you can conclude, the fact that data have much more authority than we do. I mean, science is built to remove as much as possible our desires and our biases and our opinions. It'll do so imperfectly, but it does the best job of stripping that away to reveal, uh, to reveal uh, that which is most likely true, though the story is developing. Yeah. 
And uh, so if, there, if there's anything, if there's any piece of knowledge, uh, I wish uh, people to uh, address any sort of ignorance or inexpertise on, uh, I, would, I would say that I'm a big fan of scientific method. Um, and it's worth it to know it, even if you don't do science in uh, your own profession, you can certainly do science in your everyday life, at least informally. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. I think something that all of us could, could sprinkle a little bit more into our lives. David Dunning, this has been truly interesting, fascinating. I, I love some of the things we'd explore. You have a lot of other interesting work, though. I want to make sure the listeners can stay connected with you. Anywhere we should direct them just to find out more about you and some of your work? Uh, yes, I think if you, uh, a couple things there, of course, I have a, a website, at the University of Michigan. So if you uh, Google David Dunning, University of Michigan, uh, you'll get to that website. Um, nowadays in academics, uh, a lot of our talks get videotaped. So I think if you go to YouTube and type in my name, you'll see, a, um, if you've liked my droning on here, uh, there are other places where you can see me now drone on un uninterrupted uh, on a number of different topics. So uh, uh, that's, where you can, that's where you can see material that uh, goes over some of the stuff we've talked about today, but other uh, issues that uh, our research lab has tackled. Great. Well, all that will be linked up in the show notes. But David Dunning, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope I haven't bored too many people. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.